Yeah, I never thought that I would ever compare the leadership style of a president of the United States to that of a mafia boss. And in fact, when the idea first came into my head when I was dealing with President Trump, I pushed it away because it seemed too dramatic. But the more I thought about it, the comparison was on the mark. Typically, when I used to investigate people, they weren't outside the courtroom smoking cigars, laughing it up with their friends. As the president says over and over, there's nothing to flip about. That's very much like a mob family. Cohen has represented to me and almost everyone who's ever talked to him that he is fiercely loyal. And that fierceness is now going to be tested. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So since I joined this show, I've been reluctant to develop even an operating theory of the rise of Donald Trump, and we've heard a lot of them. Trump as narcissist, Trump as autocrat, Trump as showman or master persuader. None of these have explanatory power. And what's most perplexing to me about Trump voters is how willing they were to act on their passions and not their interests. Their votes, like the president they elected, seem thoroughly counteradaptive. I mean, some idea that they were voting because they felt economically insecure and saw Trump as a remedy. I mean, polls show many still support him, though he's given them nothing. One of the founding principles of market capitalism is that a relatively benign set of interests in money-making will supersede our passions, our bloodlust and bigotry. Amartya Sen, the economist, gives this analogy— You're being chased by a pack of bigots who hate you for your skin or they intend to rape you. To stop them, you scatter $100 bills on the ground behind you, and they stop to pick up the money. Their greed subdues their violent urges. Stephen Greenblatt, the literary critic, has further talked about what was once called the sweetening effect of market capitalism. People only ever learn compassion and sympathy for other people, he says, because they want to sell them something, because it's in their enlightened self-interest to have customers and human revenue streams, so they learn how to live with other people and, and not kill them. But what about people who are greedy and bigoted at once, who want to make money but also act tribal and racist? In political economy, this is a very rare scenario, but it does exist in one place, mafias. They exist in nations even with the rule of law, like the U.S., but they don't last long. And this is what I think we're seeing with Donald Trump and his syndicate. According to Sen, these things are short-lived because they're founded on a mystery, as with a cult, that someone would wreck themselves in the name of loyalty to someone who's contemptuous of them, like they're Don or, or they're Donald, but they do for a time until they flip. So today we're talking about the mafia and prosecuting the mafia and how the prosecution of the Italian mafia earlier this century influences the way the Southern District of New York is prosecuting the Trump syndicate today. The former federal prosecutor Mimi Rocha is my guest, and we'll be back with her after the break. Joining me on the line is Mimi Rocha. She's a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. She was Jim Comey's longtime colleague, and she has experience flipping witnesses and prosecuting the mob. Welcome, Mimi. Thanks for having me. So you are you were a federal prosecutor in the much vaunted Southern District of New York, SDNY, as we've all learned to call it. That's right. So I was just saying to you, in a period of widespread corruption of the Manafort variety and a Don running what seems increasingly like a version of 
Cosa Nostra from the Oval Office. I know you won't go so far as to say that, but I predict there's going to be an uptick of little American boys and girls wanting to be federal prosecutors, especially in SDNY. <laughs> so tell me how you got there. Uh, well, uh, my law career before that uh, was actually short. Um, I uh, was at a law firm. I clerked for two judges. So I was fortunate to end up pretty quickly at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I had always wanted to be a prosecutor for some personal reasons. I, I had some family members who were victim um, of some pretty horrible crimes growing up, and uh, that inspired me, actually, to want to work on um, sex crimes prosecutions, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I started at the Manhattan DA's office as a paralegal. Linda Fairstein was my uh, idol, and uh, I wanted to become her. I took a slightly different path, but I'm, I'm really glad that I did because I think there's a lot of different types of important prosecution work to do. And doing it at the SDNY was amazing. I started there in February of 2001, which turned out to be interesting given that the September 11th attacks were shortly after that. Um, and literally, my office was at the center of it in, physically and in, in terms of leading the prosecution. And it was an unbelievable time to be there. And that's sort of a whole separate story. But uh, I was part of a team that came back into the office in the few days after the attacks. Um, They let a few of us back down there to kind of man the office, if you will. And uh, we literally were walking around with masks on because there was smoke in the office. And um, the office was led at the time by Mary Jo White, who was had been an incredible U.S. attorney for many, many years, and she was supposed to leave right then, but she decided to stay on to see the office through those first few months after September 11th, and it was an extremely emotional and kind of harrowing time, but the office rose to the occasion, and it just made us all stronger and more dedicated to what we were doing. And then uh, in January, Jim Comey came in yes. as the U.S. attorney. So that's why that's why I think actually the, this backstory is important because we've talked a lot on the show about the story of the rise of Donald Trump. We've talked about Paul Manafort. We've talked about Felix Sater, an informant. We've talked about all kinds of New York and Washington figures who chose the other path. James Comey's book, I'm almost finished, and it's it's well worth reading, also chronicles his experience with violent crime as a child and his decision to commit himself to prosecution and to public service. Yeah. Um, and then he also, as you say, talks about 9-11. So there are a lot of figures, including you, who are who are really in the news, who were there then. Among them, of course, Comey, but also Rudolph Giuliani. So can you can you actually go back and and this is all to me extremely relevant. Tell me about that period and also working with Giuliani and Comey. At that time. So it, it, it's hard to even describe. I mean, as anybody who was in America, but especially New York at the time, it was such a shocking time. And for everyone, let alone for people who literally, I mean, I remember coming up from the subway and looking up and seeing people's faces as they had just seen the second plane hit. So I saw mm-hmm. their reaction and it looked like people had seen we're looking at a horror movie. And I, it was just something, a look I had never seen before in real life. And it kind of went from there. And, you know, I think what was so amazing, though, is the way that 
the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and the people in it and Rudy Giuliani, who, look, I'm, I do not um, have a lot of great things to say about him now, but I will say at that time, you know, I didn't have personal dealings with him, but the way that he led the city in that time was helpful and comforting and reassuring. And, you know, we needed leadership at that time, and he did provide that. You know, I think the part about Jim Comey that's interesting is, so he came in in January. So, you know, it was a couple of months after September 11th, but it was still very raw. Mm -hmm. And he took over an office that Mary Jo White had been leading for, I forget the exact number of years, but close to a decade. And people were anxious and worried and who, you know, this new person is coming in. And yes, he had been in the Southern District of New York, but we've had this leader and and this is a, a very perilous time. And I remember being in the old courthouse with hundreds of people from the U.S. Attorney's Office for his first appearance in front of the whole office. And he and Mary Jo White walked in and he's this, you know, extremely tall man and she's a very petite woman. And so they could not have looked more different. Um, and they both, you know, kind of broke the tension by making jokes about, you know, who was Mickey Mantle and, you know, who represented what baseball player or baseball team. And he started speaking to us And by the end of his speech, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember the feeling afterwards. Every, you could hear a pin drop and every single person in that room was ready to follow him and do whatever he needed us to do. He, whatever else people say about him, he is an impeccable leader. He is an unbelievably inspiring leader and man who truly believes in the rule of law and the role of prosecutors in trying to do good. And that was evident in that first speech. And it really, I think, comforted us all at that very perilous time. Um, That, I mean, that gets to, uh, we're skipping over a lot of moments, including, I think you were there for the, for the Martha Stewart prosecution. Is that right? Which, which uh, James Comey in his book actually makes clear is still is also an important precedent for our time. Um, I was in New York at the time, and you just think Martha Stewart doesn't go to jail. She's a person that doesn't go to jail, um, and yet, like Scooter Libby, later she had lied to law enforcement and obstructed justice. And there was a question that even Martha Stewart wasn't above the law. I think that was a a very powerful message that you all sent that celebrity wouldn't protect you. That And that's, that's look, in my experience, I know people don't necessarily see it on a day-to-day basis, but that's been my experience in the office, both with respect to wealth, class, privilege, and also political party, that prosecutors and agents, when they look at somebody who they're investigating, they look at their actions and their words with respect to whether it's, it constitutes a crime, not where they came from, not how much money they have, and not what political party they have. And that's what's so sad to me about what's happening today is that people are attributing political motive to so many people in the Department of Justice. And I I think this is part of what Jim Comey is trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think anyone who's been a career prosecutor really sees that as a dangerous thing that's going on um, because, you know, I was trying to think of a similar analogy, actually, and the best I could come up with is 
you know, a doctor who's in an emergency room, if a patient comes in and is on the operating table and they know that that person is, you know, in need of medical attention, but they also know that that person just did something that they personally abhor, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, maybe was involved in a racial incident or something that that doctor personally would never condone. But they're not going to not treat the patient. And I'm not just talking about because they're required to. I mean, they they put it aside. They Mm -hmm. put their personal feelings aside and they deal with with the medical situation because that's their job. That's what they're trained to do. And prosecutors and agents approach it, I think, in a similar way. Now, that comes to, I think, what we're all evaluating, you know, it's like if we could ever understand October 2016, we might understand everything. It's like right. one month in history. So so you were there during you were still at SDNY during this period and you were witnessing from afar your former colleague, your former boss make decisions. But they were decisions along the same axes that you all had decided before that party affiliation, even gender, you know, with Hillary Clinton. I was thinking about Martha Stewart doesn't go to jail in that period was partly because she was a woman. I was surprised, frankly, that Winona Ryder went to jail. You know, I just thought we don't we don't put starlets and older women in prison. And, you know, it was still so jarring to hear people talk about Hillary and say, lock her up. But clearly, Comey, I think, was still correcting for that bias. You know, not only was she the front runner had she'd been investigated a lot she certainly seemed less criminal far less criminal than her opponent but he may it may have been something of the same the same dynamic that you all had with these earlier prosecutions do you think that's true look i i mean i have to admit to be to not being unbiased when it comes to jim comey um i'm i'm I have just such respect for him because I found, you know, worked for him um, at a time that was so perilous. And, and, and so I say this admitting my bias. Yeah. I think that the decisions he made, whether you agree with them or not, came from a place of him trying to protect the reputation and independence of the FBI and the Department of Justice. He, he may have made mistakes in doing that. And it, it seems like in a lot of ways, you know, many people think that backfired. And I think he has said that. But I believe that it came from his background as a Southern District and Eastern District of Virginia prosecutor, a career public official who believes in the institutions and is an institutionalist and wants to preserve their reputation. And and so I think what he has said is that he was afraid that if he didn't come out and, you know, say what he said, then, and, and Hillary was elected, um, you know, people would view him as having, him and the FBI as having hidden the ball. There there are a lot of ways to pick that apart. But I to me, what I, what I come back to is he is a truth teller. There is just, no one can really question that he tells the truth, yeah. uh, I think, reasonably. And no one can, I, I think we shouldn't question that he was trying to do this from that motivation. And what is, um, all right, so let's come up to the to the present moment. But, you know, all this does influence um, how 2016 happened and also what experience SDNY is bringing to let's say, the the prosecution of what seems to be one of their targets, Michael Cohen, 
Um, I was going to say the president's personal attorney because that's the Homeric phrase we use for him. But now I think we should call him an executive in the Trump organization. Right. Um, let's start with how you responded to the raid. Did that does that seem like a decisive moment? The raid of Michael Cohen's office. Yes, but I wouldn't use the word raid because ah. I think that's the word that um, Mr. Trump and some of his uh, allies would like to use to make yeah. it sound like the FBI you know, sort of lawlessly went busting down um, Mr. Cohen's door. And that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what happened with Michael Cohen. Yes, is extraordinary because of who he is affiliated with. Trump. Mm-hmm. And because he's a lawyer, and as I, you know, many people have said now, getting a search warrant for a lawyer's office, home, etc., is unusual, and it should be taken extremely seriously, but it's not unheard of. I mean, many of us who prosecuted mob cases, financial cases, all sorts of cases, got search warrants and or prosecuted lawyers. And and the reason for that, and, and that's why I like your term, that he was, you know, not just calling him the president's lawyer, because it seems like what the Southern District is going after here is not Michael Cohen, the lawyer, but Michael Cohen, the fixer, the businessman, the do-it-all uh, kind of person. And that doesn't, that doesn't carry attorney-client privilege, mm-hmm. those actions. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be careful, and they are, and they're taking it seriously. But, you know, it, it wasn't a raid. They, they got, as you know, you know, a court-approved search warrant that went through many layers before it even got to court. So before an, a, a judge even read and signed off on it, there were many layers of review within the U.S. Attorney's Office and within the Department of Justice. There's an office called the Office of Enforcement Operations that has to sign off on any uh, action like this with respect to a lawyer. And having had personal experience with all of those, I can tell you they are not rubber stamps. They scrutinize what you are doing. I have had search warrants personally uh, that I applied for for a lawyer, one that was turned down because we could not yet show that there wasn't other ways to get that information that were less intrusive. And I've had search warrants for lawyers that were approved. And I went through that process. And every time I did, I said, boy, I never want to have to do this again, because that was an extremely laborious process. I mean, it's taken very seriously. Was that a part of was that part of the mob prosecutions? Was this a conciliary Um, figure? So I had a couple of different lawyers prosecutions that I was involved in. Uh, One was actually two, two lawyers that were involved in a Russian, you could call it organized crime, but sort of one of these staged accident medical insurance fraud rings. Oh, yeah, which is also right, something that Cohen was close to early in his life. There seems to be some, yes, some some links. Um, But this was a, a type of crime. It's still out there, but it was very big in, I would say, like, early 2000s, um, it was just ballooning in New York Mm. and Brooklyn, Queens. And we, uh, with the FBI, um, you know, went after many of these organizations. And and they were that because they were really a conspiracy between some medical clinics, lawyers, um, x-ray companies, MRI companies, you know, where they had this whole thing Mm. set up where they would stage accidents and then have people from the accidents, go into these clinics, get unnecessary treatment, go to the lawyer, get, you know, file claims uh, against the insurance companies and against New York State and 
collect money. And so, um, you know, we ended up going after some of those lawyers and some of those lawyers did cooperate Mm -hmm. um, because it was a scam. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. I also was involved with other prosecutors in the prosecution of a lawyer uh, who was sort of a house counsel for the Genovese crime family. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all public. Uh, His name was Peter Peluso. He wore a wire against many members of the family, and it it led to many uh, prosecutions. He was a lawyer who worked with this organized crime family who they tried to use him as a shield. So they would involve him in conversations, thinking that that meant the conversations were privileged. Mm -hmm. And that was simply not the case. (laughs) Wow. Um, Because they weren't seeking legal advice. So this um, pretext of or effort to sort of muster and leverage privilege is not totally new to you. No, not at all. Um, And, you know, look, I I don't know enough about the facts with Mr. Cohen here to say that they were strategically trying to do that. But but even if they weren't at the time, it does seem like they're trying to claim privilege now as a way to stop the investigation from being able to go as fully forward as it should. With the organized crime families, it was strategic. I mean, there is no question. They used lawyers to pass messages from one person to another. They had lawyers sit in meetings. They did all of those things strategically, as the lawyers and other cooperators later told us, to try to shield them. And also just they thought that law enforcement was less likely to look at them if there was a lawyer involved. So whether Cohen and whoever he was dealing with at the time strategically thought, hey, if I'm here, you know, and if I do this as opposed to someone else, Mm -hmm. it will be privileged. I don't know, but they maybe I think we don't know yet. The the outcry of, you know, the the from the Trump camp about the bashing of, you know, destruction of uh, the attorney client privilege and civil liberties is just wrong because that's not what's going on here because they're not seems like they're not even going into real work that a lawyer did here. <laughs> they're going into work that Cohen the fixer did. And was that was that true also of Peter Peluso? I mean, tell me the Peter Peluso yeah. story because some people have likened, and I was just saying that those of us playing armchair prosecutor um, <laughs> are kind of fantasizing about how devilishly we would be able to flip Michael Cohen. And this show has also paid homage to someone I think you worked with, Andrew Weissman, right, who's in the room with yeah. with um, Robert Mueller now, who's known for being able to flip anyone who flipped uh, Sammy the Bull, right? He he ended up testify- flipping on the Gambino family, is that right? So yeah. This is, okay. So, and that's considered one of the great flips. Um, he was fairly high up and uh, quite high up and, and had a lot to say. So Peter Peluso, I mean, did you have a hand in getting him to wear a wire? And how did also that get around the privilege question? I mean, the Genovese family must have thought that he was, their conversations with him were still privileged when they were anything but privileged if he was wearing a wire. Correct. So, so there was an, another prosecutor named John Claudner who um, started that case with uh, Peter Peluso. And so he was involved in those very initial days when they approached Peluso and tried to get him to wear a wire. And after some back and forth, he did. 
Um, wait, to, what is, wait, I have to stop you. Sure. What, what is that back and forth like? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, well, you know, there, there are different ways that it happens. But the, I mean, it, as with any cooperator, I, you know, in organized crime or any other kind of case, the back and forth is, here's what you're looking at. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how this is going to play out. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to end well for you. It's going to end with you going to jail. And if you want to you know, make sure that doesn't happen. The best and really the only likely way for that to happen is for you to cooperate with us now right. and not wait for you to get charged and not wait for, you know, your case to go and you to get convicted and other people to testify against you. So, so you need to get on board now. Um, that's like a really short version of the conversation. And yeah. sometimes, you know, it happens after one of those conversations, which lasts hours, um, usually. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it doesn't. Sometimes they say no. And, you know, then they come back to you a week later, you get a call from their lawyer saying, you know what, he wants to talk to you now. Sometimes they need to see something. They need to hear a recording of somebody else having recorded them. I mean, there's uh, so many different ways um, that lawyers, uh, that uh, defendants end up cooperating, even if they're not yet charged, so they're not defendants yet. And that that was the case with, for example, Peter Pelusa, the lawyer, he wasn't charged. Um, because once someone's charged with a criminal, you know, prosecution, they're not as, quote, valuable as a cooperator. It's in those times hmm. before anyone knows that there are going to be, that they are charged, that it's public, that they are in some ways most valuable as a cooperator because they have the potential to do what we call proactive work and not just provide historical cooperation. Got it. Um, Proactive work is the wearing a wire. Historical is reporting on things that they've seen. Exactly. And and you want both if if there's that opportunity. That's, That's the sort of goal um, in, in getting cooperators is you would like to have the, the proactive piece, even if it's short, um, because there's nothing like recording a conversation between your cooperator and someone you're investigating that, if nothing else, corroborates what the cooperator is going to tell you, right? So Peter Peluso can come in and say, they had me pass a message from, you know, Bernie Belomo, the acting boss of the Genovese family, to Buster Ardito, a captain in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and he can say that. We're not going to have surveillance of that necessarily. We're not going to have recordings of that. But now if he goes to Bernie Belomo and says, uh, hey, remember that message you had me pass, and Belomo in any way acknowledges that that happened, mm-hmm. that's really good corroboration. So you may not have the contemporaneous recording of it having happened, but now you have something where they seem to acknowledge it. So, Got it. or you, so you in some way reference the, the past conduct that you, the cooperator are talking about. I think and that's, that that's, happens a lot. Isn't that what happened? I think with the woman um, who wore a wire with Harvey Weinstein, she was reminding him. Of Correct. An, yeah. Earlier offense. Okay. So Sammy, the bull Gravano, Gravano right. He is, has been likened now to, in speculation uh, on Twitter at least, about whether Michael Cohen will flip on on Donald Trump or on other members of the Trump organization. He's been cited as one of the highest profile flips in, in American history, I think. And also evidence that that everyone will flip. But people don't right. ultimately... There's this the X factor that I think James Comey talks about with people in 
gangsterish mobster situations is it has to do with this loyalty right. and that and 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 it's so sort of supernatural that it must be very frustrating to prosecutors who see that it's so clearly in their interest to cooperate if they're human beings if they have families they don't right. want to spend a life life in jail um and yet Sometimes the pull of these promises they've made to um, to families or to organizations or to you know Cosa Nostra are are so powerful that they you know that they they delay. And I think with Cohen, and I've heard from reporters close to the story that Cohen's family is just torn up over what he should do. This is a week ago, so who knows if he's changed his mind since then? But his family must just say, I mean, this isn't even. A formally Cosa Nostra bound by a Sicilian history and religion and, um, you know, the family's all friends with each other. I realize that Cohen feels that he has a family-like relationship with Trump. He had said he would take a bullet for him. But what could possibly be pulling on him except for the, I mean, I guess some idea that he would, he's a snitch. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, here's where I do think there are so many analogies to organized crime prosecutions, which, as you say, Jim Comey did and is, is talking about, Preparara did in his early years mm-hmm. as a prosecutor, and so many of us did. And, I mean, you can't help but, but look at the situation and not think back to those. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, the reason Sammy the Bull, everyone keeps talking about him, he was such a famous cooperator, in part because he was really the first major um, organized crime cooperator. So he was the first made guy to come out and cooperate against the family, his mm-hmm. family that he was a part of, the, meaning the Gambino family, family with capital F. Mm-hmm. Um, and he cooperated against Gotti, who was like his father, who he would die for, you know, all the terms of loyalty that you can imagine. And he, he did it, right? Yeah. He's also kind of a bad example for prosecutors because ah. he ended up going bad a little bit. Um, he, he, I think, told the truth at trials and, and all of that, but, but there, were some, there were some problems with him. So prosecutors actually don't love bringing him up. Uh. There were some later cooperators who it's the same scenario that you see over and over. There's a cooperator named Mikey Scars or Michael DeLeonardo who uh, was also a Gambino. He ended up testifying in trials against Gambinos, against Genovese, because he had lots of dealings with many different families. He was a guy that nobody thought he was, you know, as old school, diehard La Cosa Nostra as you get. Yeah. I mean, he believed in the cause, which is how they view them. They view this as not just you know, friendships, not just business, but, but a way of life and being. It's almost like a cult. And I think that's what's interesting huh. is that the loyalty that we're talking about it, from the people who in organized crime, and frankly, some of the ways you hear people talk about Donald Trump is this cult of personality. It's this, you know, dedication to the person um, and and what that person represents. So the boss of the family represents the term. You know, it's it's La Cosa Nostra. It's, it's it's this thing of ours. And I know I know Jim Comey talks about that, but there's a reason. Like they take this blood oath to the family and then to the person that represents that family. And mm-hmm. they they are it's it's a little cult like. Um, and so I think you know that's. It, it's trying to break away from that that is hard for mm-hmm. cooperators and, and takes time. And I think that's probably where Michael Cohen is, is that 
it's like he took a blood oath Mm -hmm. (laughs) to Trump and to that organization and to that way of life. And breaking away from that is hard, but it happens all the time. And people who say, I would take a bullet for so-and-so, that may be true, but they won't go to jail for them. (laughs) Right, 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 right. I can't get enough of this conversation. (laughs) Um, The... um, We've all seen The Godfather. We know that there's something in the blood oath, the family, the Catholicism, the sort of florid religiosity, the coming to The Godfather for favors and so on. I still don't understand. The Trump organization does not seem as binding, as kind of familial um, as... and, and, And in fact... You know, when someone let me know that Michael Cohen would soon be prosecuted, they said someone very high up in the Trump organization, as close as you can get, who's not family. And he was the only person I could think of. You know, it's not like they have networks of other families devoted to them the way the Gambinos had other families that deferred to to them. Um, And and that should make it easier for Cohen to cooperate, frankly, because you're right. There's not that almost like societal as you said earlier, the, the, you know, the wife in organized crime, the wives all are best friends and the families and they live together in this community. I, while he's close clearly with, you know, Trump and his family, it's still more limited, as you say. And also, and you, you referenced this, there's not the stigma. I mean, the organized crime figures less so now, but they still had to always get over that idea of being the quote rat, which is a term prosecutors don't like Hmm. because it's very derogatory when really what you're doing is being a cooperating witness with the government could be seen as a noble thing. Uh, Presumably Michael Cohen isn't going to have to get over that hump of, of being seen as a rat. Like, no, you know, this is, this is what people do. They cooperate with federal investigations and, and that could be seen as something noble. Um, he also, you know, he also may be, you know, he's also part of a different community that has its own kind of allegiances. You know, you referred to earlier this medical scam. Obviously, he has this taxi business we're reading a lot about that has its own figures. I mean, he's from Long Island. He's from a close-knit uh, Jewish community. And then there are Russians, Russian Jews and Russian non-Jews who've also worked on these other issues. So he may have, may feel that his allegiance are all over the place. Um Right. Uh, it, you know, it, Donald Trump is doesn't come from any community. I mean, he he doesn't uh, talk much about it. I don't know. I, I've been right. thinking, you know, it's this new multicultural mob is maybe progressive to have right, right. Sean it's Hannity, more, yeah, the Irishman. Sort of multicultural, right. <laughs> yeah. The other um, thing that's interesting, just one other point on the cooperators, is one thing that I think many prosecutors would say is the people who end up cooperating who start from the I am never going to cooperate because I am so loyal to this person or this organization, whatever it is, end up in some ways becoming the best cooperators Hmm. because one, they are insiders who have the most to say, right? I mean, someone who isn't that loyal to, to the target that you're talking about uh, or, or, you know, the subject of your investigation probably, you know, may not have as much to say, but but mm. Michael Cohen, you know, likely was someone who, because of his loyalty, could be so trusted. So he may have a lot to say. And when he starts cooperating with the government, once they get, if they get, if they get over that hump and they make that jump, 
their new loyalty becomes to ah. the the FBI and the government and what they're doing. And they become, it's this transformation that's really interesting to see, especially if they go into court and actually plead guilty. They they just, they give 100%. This has been, I mean, what an interesting year to, t- to think about cooperating witnesses. I mean, we've seen Me Too women break the bonds or or Rob Porter's ex-wives break the bonds of this former loyalty and then join something else like the Me Too movement. Right. You know, um, and similarly with the Cambridge Analytica whistleblowers, it seems like there are analogies all, all around for this. Um, OK, the last thing is Comey talks about one of his first prosecutions this is pre 9-11 before he moved to Richmond when he was in New York was the channel, the so-called channel. The channel, right, is what connects the LCN, the Cosa Nostra in New York, to the Sicilian origins mm-hmm. of it. Right. And um, and uh, you maybe know what I'm getting at here. Is it possible that some of these Russian mafia figures like Felix Sater and the gang in Little Odessa and Brighton Beach, whom Michael Cohen seems to have some overlap with, also speak to counterparts in Russia? I, I think it's possible. I mean, I would be speculating, but there's there's no question that, you know, there are links, whether you're talking about Italian organized crime or Russian organized crime, be, you know, between figures here in the United States and and the the ones that we know less well and have less access to in other countries. And And again, going back to the Italian organized crime example, any prosecution we did, there was evidence of communications with, you know, the 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 mafia in Sicily. Um, they're 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 not two separate things, and I'm I'm sure that's true, and and definitely saw some of that with respect to Russian organized crime as well. Oof. Okay. Well, it's going to be a bumpy but fascinating next few months, as it's been a bumpy but fascinating last few months. Um, <laughs> Feels like years. <laughs> Mimi, uh, you're a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District, and you teach, is that right, criminal justice at Pace? Pace Law School, yes. Um, and contribute to MSNBC. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. We're on Twitter at RealTrumpcast. That's at RealTrumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>